0: Tonight's passage happens in the wake of something that Isaac has done and that he cannot now undo. Isaac, as y'all read last week in the first part of chapter 27, Isaac has blessed Jacob. He has uttered words of blessing. And by that speech, he hasn't just said something. Rather, he's helped to shape what is the case. And he's helped to shape what is going to be the case. In verse 33, in response to Esau's arrival, Isaac asks, If you're Esau, who was it then that was here earlier who already brought me dinner? Who was it then that I blessed? But before Isaac can even hear the answer to that that question, he goes on to say, yes, and he shall be blessed. This emphasizes the efficacy of that blessing that he's already pronounced. It suggests that whoever it was, that was blessed, that Isaac already blessed earlier, no matter who it was. Like, it could be Billy Bob from next door. You know, whoever that guy was, he shall, in fact, be blessed. Isaac hasn't just said something. He's done something. Likewise, in verse 37, he says, uh, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. He hasn't just described him as Lord over him. He's made him Lord over him. At the heart of the passage, in response to this this thing that has been done. The heart of the passage is Esau's agonized, his agonized incredulity. What does that word mean? Incredulity? What does it mean to be incredulous? Incredulity is is, yeah, it's the experience of, of disbelief. It's it's the sense of of being like, it can't, it can't be like this. This cannot be the case, that it is what it appears to be. Incredulity is the feeling that I had Last week in Oklahoma, when after a summer of watching the arrows that I was shooting at 60 yards find their mark in the bullseye, one after the other, uh, I was incredulous this past Thursday whenever I had a buck, the biggest buck I've ever seen in my life, at point blank right under my tree, and I felt incredulous when I stared at the arrow on the ground and the buck gone and not a bit of blood on that arrow. Um, I was like, it can't be that I missed a deer right there! Right there. I feel like you're silly too. At any rate. So, <laughs> at the heart of the passage is Esau's agonized incredulity. He gives voice to this incredulity three times in the passage. And, and that incredulity is bracketed on either, on either side of, of those three times by, by inarticulate, wordless cries Of pain. So, beginning in the first part of verse thirty-four, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And then he begins to articulate his incredulity, first by pleading, "Bless me, even me also, my father." And then the agony of his incredulity escalates as it becomes more articulate. So then, in verse in the latter part of verse thirty-six. He says, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And then finally, in verse 38, the third time, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. The shape of Esau's incredulity, the question he's repeating explicitly and implicitly again and again, is something like, Dad. What have you done? Surely you didn't. More specifically, his agony is begging the question of scarcity, the sense of scarcity that seems to have shaped Isaac's blessing of Jacob. Surely, Esau is saying, surely there's enough. Isn't there plenty blessing to go around? Surely you haven't spent it all on Jacob. And underneath all that, maybe more broadly, is the question, why? Why would you bestow a blessing that gives everything to one and nothing to the other, that chooses one by way of excluding the other? In verses 39 through 40, in response to Esau's incredulity, in reply to his son's desperate and repeated plea, bless me, even me also, my father, there, Isaac gives Esau what amounts to the leftovers, the table scraps of Jacob's blessing. He pronounces on him the little good that he is capable of imagining for his firstborn son in the wake of the blessing he's already pronounced on Jacob. This quasi-blessing comes up to less than half the length of the words Isaac pronounced on Jacob in the first part of chapter 27. What little Isaac manages to say of Esau is largely by way of contrast to the blessing he gave to Jacob. It's almost like the antithesis of Jacob's blessing. So whereas Isaac said to Jacob, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, he says to Esau in verse 39, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. In fact, it wouldn't be wrong to say But this blessing verges dangerously close to being a curse. It echoes all too closely the Lord's pronouncement of exile on Adam and Eve from the garden, as well as the pronouncement of Cain's banishment. And yet there is a sliver of hope that emerges at the very end of this pseudo-blessing. Isaac says that Esau will serve his brother, but he ends that pronouncement by saying, but when you grow restless you shall break his yoke from your neck. This is important. Not only because it shows that even from within the needless confines of his too narrowed imagination that Isaac can in fact conceive of a hopeful future for both of his children, even if only a little bit. But also this is important because it affirms the fact that Esau's future will not be wholly determined by his family nor even by the power of the blessing that has been pronounced. The unimaginative blessing of Isaac, a blessing defined too much by a sense of scarcity, has not definitively laid the tracks for Esau. He's not utterly fated. Instead, his own choices and his agency will help to shape his future. For the time being, however, all that Esau has in mind is murder. So we read in verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the day of mourning for my father, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau doesn't realize it, but at this moment he's standing at a fork in the road. A fork where two very different kinds of future diverge in front of him. He's at a juncture not unlike the, the juncture that God points out to Cain way back in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Ironically and unintentionally, Rebekah, the very mother who always preferred Jacob, The mother who rejected and sabotaged Esau also saves Esau, however unintentionally, from self-destruction in her effort to save Jacob from Esau's wrath. She does that because she gives him space to to pursue a course other than revenge and murder. So overall, if it isn't already clear, let me just go ahead and make it clear, that it seems to me like, like Scripture subtly suggests That Isaac is wrong to have shaped the blessing in the way that he did. Or at least I think scripture acknowledges a very serious deficiency in Isaac's actions here. And I want to be careful here. It's not as if Isaac, like, like God obviously uses these decisions and allows them to take place. And I think it's also impossible to say, to deny that God's will is done here. And yet, I think that scripture nonetheless subtly suggests that Isaac is wrong to have shaped the blessing in the way that he did. There's a dramatic contrast. First of all, there's a dramatic contrast between the way that God has construed the blessing up until this point in Genesis and the way Isaac seems to imagine that blessing here in chapter 27. In short, everywhere throughout Genesis up to this point, God has described his blessing as abundant and limitless. The purpose of blessing, as God has described it, is exactly to overflow the hands of its recipients and to spill out everywhere and on everyone. But Isaac seems to have imagined, and it has transmitted the blessing, as if it has to be given to one son instead of the other, as if it's not as abundant as it really is, as if from a place of scarcity. Isaac's Failure, then, is a failure of imagination. And it's a failure of imagination that was long in the making. For the blessing Isaac was deceived into giving to Jacob is just the very same blessing that he apparently had long planned to give to Esau. Like, what's gone wrong here isn't just the son to whom the blessing was given. It's just the fact that it was always in the works, that it was only going to be one that received it. So what's what's wrong is that Isaac and Rebecca, from the very beginning have divided their affection unevenly between these two boys. Isaac's failure of imagination signifies a flaw, a deficiency in human love, a deficiency in human love that's so ordinary, so common, as to seem unavoidable. This deficiency of human love is the mistake of thinking that when we choose this one, but that has to mean not choosing this one. The flaw in human love is that every instance of human affection seems haunted and plagued by a kind of ranking from most to least favored. The immediate structure of the passage also seems to affirm the subtext of Esau's incredulity, especially whenever it's expressed that last time, have you but one blessing, my father. I mean, the subtext there is like, surely you're doing this wrong, you know? And I think that the immediate structure of the passage seems to affirm that subtext. The mere fact that this incredulity, incredulity is reiterated three times in the passage, I think, lends legitimacy to Esau's pain and to the subtext of his questions. Zooming out a little bit, but still within the context of Genesis, I'm still sort of proving the point here that that I think Genesis is kind of like, ah, maybe Isaac could have done better there. So zooming out a little bit, but still within the context of Genesis, nearly at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 48, Jacob, who at that point in Genesis has been renamed Israel, so this is this Jacob that we're talking about here, before the end of his life, he has the opportunity to pass on God's blessing to Abraham to his own two grandsons, actually, to Joseph's sons. And when he does that, I'm not going to go through this passage with a fine-tooth comb here, but when he does that, you're going to see that there still remains in the shape of that blessing an actual differentiation between the two grandsons. And again, we'll see the younger given a kind of, let's just say like leadership role in the blessing. And yet it's striking that there's a plurality in this blessing. Like just the mere fact that it's both the grandsons this time, that are being blessed. Jacob lays his hands simultaneously on both the boys. In fact, he crosses his hands when he lays them on on both of them. And he says, God bless them. He gives both those boys the same words of blessing. They are both gathered and included into the same blessing. And on the whole, I think one thing that this story might be subtly suggesting is a kind of modest, but nonetheless a consequential kind of generational progress here that Jacob has learned something that his father had not yet been capable of imagining. So zooming out further still to Luke 15, Jesus tells us a parable, of, of course, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. And this is a story about a father. This is a father in the story who's meant to embody and illustrate for us vividly the love of God, the love that God has for his children. And that's a story of a father who refuses... To make a choice between his two sons. And yet one of the troubling things that story reveals is that even as God reaches out to embrace us, that we struggle to accept the perfect love of a perfect father. We struggle to know ourselves for the sons and daughters that we actually are. So to move now towards reflecting on how we might receive this passage and and do something with it and find ourselves addressed by it in our own lives. To start off with, I think all of us is likely to identify more immediately with one of these two sons than the other. I think, just to start out in rough sketch here, I think that either of us is likely to be a person of whose whose sense of identity stands on shaky ground, like Jacob's does. Or that we're likely to be a person like Esau who was needlessly not chosen or not blessed by someone who couldn't imagine a way to make room for us in their acceptance. As for Jacob, and as for the Jacobs in the world, Jacob secures the blessing for himself. He gets it. But to do so, Jacob had to lie about who he really is. And so however effective and consequential the blessing is in his life, Until Jacob can learn to live truthfully as himself, it's hard to imagine that he can actually find satisfaction in the blessing that he's received. The blessing is going to have to become for Jacob something given instead of something taken. It makes all the difference in the world that he took that blessing. And it's going to have to become something that's given instead of something that's taken. In the end, what that's going to mean is that Jacob will need a new name I think the way this often shakes out in our own life stories is that the Jacobs of the world are people who, for whom somewhere pretty early on, they managed to seize upon some specific identifier, something about themselves that they come to think of as themselves. So here's some examples of what I mean by an identifier. It means like you are the smart one, you're the pretty one, you're the leader, you're the athletic one. You're the artist or you're the hard worker or the responsible one. And that identifier for the Jacobs of the world, it doesn't actually seem to be a lie, at least not quite to the degree that like putting goat skin on yourself and literally lying might seem. And in fact, it often isn't a lie. But on the other hand, it's too small, those identifiers, they're too small and too fragile to carry a person's whole sense of identity, of who they are and of their worth. If you're a Jacob, often the identifier is a partial truth about you. It's a partial truth about you. But it was a truth that you dialed up and you poured everything into because it was the only thing that seemed to get you the attention and acceptance you needed. Which means that this thing that was actually just some aspect of you came to eclipse all of you. What may not be immediately evident is that seizing upon a singular identifier puts your worth as a person, it puts your worth into an an ongoing competitive struggle against other people, whether that competition is out in the open or just in your own mind. For you to have your identity, you have to take it from someone else. And what that means is that it can be taken from you too. Sooner or later, something happens to to destabilize your identifier. All of a sudden, there's a new kid on the team who's faster than you. Or there's a person in class who's better at drawing than you are. Or you get to a point in school where you can't keep up the GPA. Or you realize that you were only the smart kid so long as it was in your small class in your hometown. And now that you're in this other place, there are definitely some smarter kids. Or you tear your ACL and you're never quite the same at your sport after surgery. Your identity, and therefore your worth, seem threatened. Jacob robbed his father's blessing away from his brother Esau. He leaves with the goods, but to get the goods, he had to become someone other than he really was. He got the stuff, but the price he paid for that usurpation of blessing is a life of fear. He has to flee his home and the wrath of Esau. If he's ever going to be whole and healed, he's still going to need his father's love. He's going to have to find himself embraced for who he actually is. As for Esau, the Esau's of the world, these are the older siblings in their families. And I don't necessarily mean that these are literally only the firstborn children, but I mean that kind of, you know, both the older sibling part and the family part, kind of both literally and figuratively. These are the people who inexplicably lost what was coming to them, who have had their rightful inheritance stolen away, when they weren't looking. For no reason they can understand or or that they seem to have cause, they lived their lives away from the fatness of the land. Though there was plenty enough to go around, they have to live by the sweat of the brow, by the strength of their own sword. They watch as other people who don't work as hard get all the stuff. They're passed over when benefits and opportunities get doled out that should rightly be theirs. Theirs is the pain of suffering some kind of actual injustice or if not injustice at least real unfairness i just want to be really clear about this like genesis is super clear that like esau got screwed rebecca who screwed him says as much in this passage so when she's telling isaac to not isaac the other guy jacob to leave she says She tells him to run away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. So the Esau's of the world, they really have suffered some kind of unfairness. The favorite sins of the Esau's are the sins of envy and anger. Their deprivation makes what other people have a constant source of jealousy and provocation. So it is that we read in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. The Bible suggests that murder is an entirely ordinary temptation for human beings. In a world where love is ordinarily plagued by failure of imagination, by the falsehood of scarcity, in a world where our place is always within some hierarchy of favor over against our siblings, in that kind of world, the impulse to kill each other is ordinary. It's as ordinary for us as it was for Esau, even if we don't literally plot murder. We nonetheless fantasize about revenge. We assassinate people's reputations to anyone that will listen. We lie in wait for the opportunity to get ours back. As helpful as it is to reflect on which of these two sons we most relate to, it's also important to recognize that the major contrast in this passage isn't the contrast between Jacob and Esau, But more deeply, even if more subtly, it's the contrast between the flawed love of human beings and the perfect love of God. In fact, in some ways, the experience of Jacob and Esau is remarkably similar to each other. Especially when we remember both of the parents in this story, we can recognize that both of these sons both are accepted and aren't. Both of them are rejected in their own ways. Both of them are never entirely accepted, and never uncomplicatedly blessed. The real overarching contrast in the passage, again, then, is the contrast between the superabundant limitlessness of God's blessing and the human misperception of a scarcity of blessing. The contrast between perfect love and acceptance, the perfect love and acceptance of God, and the flawed and qualified love of human beings. Both of these sons live in a world in which human love and human relationships are depleted by a failure of imagination, by the delusion of scarcity. And that is the world they still live in, even whenever this whole blessing thing seems to be sorted out, and they go their separate ways. And therefore, the challenge before them, going forward as they part ways, is essentially the same. For Esau, the path forward is to grow up into a man who's capable of forgiving his brother. He's going to have to make his way in the world deprived of things that should have been his. That's not changing. He really has been deprived of those things. And yet, even though he has only just begun to comprehend what that's going to mean for him, he'll have to grow up into a man who lives not by anger and wrath and vengeance, but by forgiveness. A man who cares more about embracing his brother than about getting what's rightfully his. What Isaac has pronounced on him is true. Like, one day you're going to break the yoke that your brother has around your neck. But amazingly, when that day comes, it's going to come not by Esau exacting revenge from Jacob, but by way of forgiveness. For Jacob, the path forward will be learning to entrust himself into the hands of God Instead instead of trusting the skill of his own hands to take what he wants Jacob will still have to live with the knowledge that he was not truly, not willingly embraced by his earthly father. He goes forward knowing that he was not the favorite son of his dad. He got that blessing, but that doesn't mean he was his dad's favorite. His is a choice between an unending drivenness, a fearful search to find an acceptance defined on his own terms, or instead to let himself be found by God And embraced exactly as he is and given a new name. Jacob will have to grow up into a man who's capable of imagining something more and better than his dad was capable of imagining. He'll have to become a man who recognizes the abundance of God's blessing as something that's meant to be distributed generously instead of taken by one at the expense of the other. As a father, he will make some of the same mistakes his father made. But finally... In the twilight of his life, he'll become a grandfather who's capable of including both his grandsons in the pronouncement of his blessing. We live our lives in that same world where Jacob and Esau struggled. The challenge before us is effectively the same challenge that it was for them. It's the challenge of living in a world where every experience we have of human love is damaged by a failure of imagination, by the lie of scarcity, and so the challenge we face is figuring out how to live not according to human failure and damage, but according to the true and superabundant love of God. I think this is one reason why the New Testament authors are as deeply preoccupied with our status as the children of God as so many of those New Testament authors are. So for example, in John chapter, three, or first John chapter three, John invites us to be amazed at God's love, at how good God's love is. And the way that he does that is to be like, we're God's kids! He says, see how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And in fact, that's what we are. In Romans chapter 8, arguably one of the most poignant exaltations of salvation that we have in the whole Bible. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, says, Here's what it's like to be saved. Here's what it's like to be forgiven and justified. It's like the Holy Spirit crying out, Daddy, in our hearts. It's like the Holy Spirit telling us that we're children of God. In many ways, the communion liturgy that we celebrate every Sunday is a journey to the rediscovery that we are God's daughters and sons, a journey in which we recover what we are so constantly liable to lose. It's a journey where we recover the confidence of the children of God. What it's like to be God's kids is substantially different and better than what it's like to be anybody else's kids. In Genesis 27, both Jacob and Esau say in their turn, I'm your son to Isaac. And that's true of both of them. And yet their sonship in a human family is haunted by hierarchy and comparison and favoritism and competition. Within the scope of God's love, however, our status as children is not depleted or qualified by those things, by hierarchy and scarcity. In Christ, the Son of God, the Father has extended the blessing of adoption as daughters and sons to any and all who would receive it, which means that in Jesus we come finally into a blessing in which we are each and all fully and equally embraced and where there is always more blessing to go around.